As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we talk to three big geopolitical experts about one big subject shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. When President Obama left his office in 2017, he told his successor there was one area of the world that consistently kept him up at night. The spot most likely to stumble humanity into nuclear-armed conflict And it wasn't the Estonian border with Russia. It wasn't even the DMZ that separates the two Koreas. It was the porous, heavily militarized, religiously divided border between India and Pakistan. It's a tense standoff made even worse by the fact both sides regularly skirmish, both sides like to saber rattle to gain domestic political points, and both sides have fairly large nuclear weapons stockpiles. And although we always hear about the disputed far northern areas of Kashmir being the fighting areas, these tension zones stretch all the way up and down the eastern border of Pakistan. We spend so much focus with Kashmir being the war zone, but there are so many other areas in the Pakistani border that are just as dangerous. You see, with India, it's a 400km slog through the harsh terrain if Pakistani forces were to ever attempt to try and take the Indian capital of New Delhi. But for India... It's only an 85-kilometer journey from their front lines to the outskirts of the Pakistani capital Islamabad. Only a few hours' drive. Only a few hours for Pakistan to make decisions on whether to use the nuclear weapons they have, or possibly lose the nuclear weapons they have. And it's not just this border where things are tense for Pakistan. Baluch rebels cause huge problems along the Iranian border. Terrorism pours out from Afghanistan, intensifying domestic pressures from within and China is taking more and more control over Pakistan with each passing month. For Pakistan, there are enemies and frenemies in every single direction. So this week, we take a look into Pakistan, why it was the area President Obama feared the most, how likely it would that each side would use their nuclear arsenals if war broke out, as well as the new great game being played by Beijing and Washington for the dominion of Islamabad. And to take us through all this... We turn to our first guest. Part one, enemies in every direction. So Pakistan was carved out of uh, uh, India's northwestern and northeastern extremities. Uh, and that basically means that Pakistan not only is, has mountains in the northwest, uh, it has deserts, it has plateaus uh, and so in the northwest, it has uh, the mountains, or the highest mountains in the world, the Himalayas. Um, uh, then it has uh, uh, the Potawar the Plateau, uh, and then the lush green plains of the Punjab, which is um, the main province of Pakistan, the most populous and uh, certainly the more, most powerful. Um, uh, and then, of course, further south, you have the province of Sindh, uh, which um, uh, uh, is, I mean, and, and then you have the Arabian Sea, Uh, And in the West, you have Baluchistan, uh, which constitutes 40% of Pakistan's territory. Uh, And then you have, uh, in the Northwest, you have the 
northwest, what was previously called the Northwest Frontier Province and now is called Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. This, of course, is post-71 Pakistan. Aisha Jalal is a Pakistani-American who is the Mary Richardson in the History Department at Tufts University. She has also written quite a number of fantastic books on the history of Pakistan and where the country is heading next. She joins us today. When Pakistan was created initially in 1947, uh, it was a country uh, that was a little odd because it was separated by a thousand miles of Indian territory and had two wings, one uh, in the northwest that I've been describing, and then also in the northeast, which included um, uh, uh, what, what was East Bengal, uh, and also parts of the former province of uh, Assam, notably Silhet district. Uh, in 71, uh, the northeastern portion separated uh, from Pakistan after a bitter uh, civil war, a brutal civil war in which uh, many innocents were massacred and there, were, there, were, there was violence. And of course, there was Indian intervention, which facilitated the creation of what is now Bangladesh. Um, so the Pakistan that we are talking about now is in the northwest, uh, and I just described it. It constitutes four uh, major provinces, Punjab being the majority province uh, with over 60% of the population. Uh, then you have the northwest frontier, uh, which is known, as I mentioned, Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, about 14-15%, uh, then Sindh, and then Baluchistan. When you look at the border of India, most of its boundaries have pretty natural borders like the Himalayas mountains or wide rivers that separate India from Myanmar. Does Pakistan have these same sort of natural borders? I mean, Pakistan constitutes, uh, I mean, what is uh, known as the Gangetic uh, Plain. Uh, it's, the, it's, the, it's the largest uh, uninterrupted alluvial plain in the world um, and which, on which they have demarcated these political frontiers. So environmentally, uh, uh, the creation of Pakistan doesn't make sense insofar as there's no natural border. Of course, there's a natural border on the Himalayan side, uh, but there isn't one on um, uh, the eastern side of Pakistan, far less on the west. I mean, Pakistan has been locked in grim battle with Afghanistan ever since its creation on, um, on, 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 the, on the border, which um, the Pakistanis claim following the British colonial state uh, is the uh, you know, Durand line, and which the Afghan governments, uh, including the Taliban, never accepted. Uh, so there is no natural border. In fact, w uh, the, the, the northwestern terrain is very rugged, uh, and it's impossible to draw a border uh, between Pakistan and Afghanistan. So really, uh, this is a political settlement, not one based on natural geography. I mean, India and Pakistan have been a, a very low-grade war with each other for a very long time now. You know, what does that border look like between the two? It's a military uh, control line, and by which I mean that, that, that they fought over this territory, which was, I mean, Kashmir was a, a, a princely state. Uh, when the British uh, uh, quit India, there were about uh, uh, 11 British Indian provinces in which the British uh, directly administered um, control. And then there were about 565-odd princely states, including Kashmir. Um, and so Kashmir remained a bone of contention and has remained a bone of, bone of contention. Uh, and they fought a military, uh, they, they initially fought one in 1947, and then a ceasefire line was eventually negotiated in January of 49 by the UN. Um, so basically the, the, the so-called border between uh, Pakistan and India uh, in terms of Kashmir is a military line of control. Uh, it's now called, uh, it was initially called ceasefire line. Now it's called a line of control, a military control. 
so it's a very, very um, uncertain border. And of course, as you're probably aware, a very um, uh, unstable one with constant firing that goes on, uh, making life miserable for the poor people who live in those areas. So obviously the divisions between these two countries are quite stark. Is there much intermingling on the borders between India and Pakistan, or is each side mostly just keeping to themselves? You can get across the border, but the, the problem is that it's very hard to demarcate the border uh, insofar as you're really cutting across tribes uh, who live on both sides. I mean, Pakhtuns, for instance, uh, or Pashtuns, uh, as they are frequently called, uh, who, uh, who are the largest uh, minority, I mean, largest group in Afghanistan, uh, in the majority in the north West, western front, uh, province of Khyber uh, Pakhtunkhwa, uh, as well as in Baluchistan. So they live on both sides of the border. Uh, the Baluch also live on both sides of the border with Iran. Uh, they are Baluch in Iran and they're Baluch in Pakistan. And these Baluch people who are split between the southeastern corner of Iran and the southwestern corner of Pakistan, can you take us through who the Baluch are and why they're very important to this story? First of all, I mean, the Baluch, uh, I mean, Baluchistan was not, a, it's not a disputed area like Kashmir is uh, between India and Pakistan since 1947. Uh, there is, of course, uh, a real grievance in Baluchistan uh, based on political denial and economic uh, deprivation. Uh, uh, predominantly a tribal uh, area um, with tribal lords uh, lording it over and, and, and basically sort of running it uh, uh, either in opposition to the Pakistan government, state of Pakistan, or in collaboration with it. But I think it's important to realize that for all the talk, uh, especially uh, marked by the diaspora, the Baluch diaspora, which is vocal um, and, and, and disaffected, understandably, um, the problem with creating a, a successful secessionist movement is that whilst the Baluch constitute about 50% um, I mean, of, of Baluch, Baluchistan's population, um, another, another 40% live in Sindh and another 10% or odd live in Punjab. So it will be very difficult to really create a Baluchistan, uh, not least because of the opposition that they're likely to get from the all-powerful Pakistan military. Um, so there is an issue um, about the demographics. Uh, so whilst there are these provinces and areas, it doesn't mean that the majority of the people who happen to be Baluch live in these areas. Another tribe of Pakistan spread across two countries are the Pashtuns, with the Pashtun homeland of Pashtunistan spread across the southeastern half of Afghanistan and the northwestern third of Pakistan. Can you take us through the idea of Pashtunistan? Uh, the Pashtunistan issue has been hanging fire and has uh, also sort of received setbacks. But I think in 1947, when it was at its height, the demand um, uh, to, to, I mean, I mean, and that's one of the bases for Afghanistan's differences with Pakistan, because Afghanistan does not recognize the Durand line uh, uh, and, and would like to sort of stretch its control over what is now uh, the province of Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. Uh, but but really, by the 70s, uh, uh, before the Saar revolution in Afghanistan, the situation on the ground was rather different. Um, and, they, and the Pakistanis, of course, always believed that there was no point in the Pakhtuns um, forming uh, an alliance with a landlocked Afghanistan, and they were better off uh, being part of Pakistan. Uh, after the revolution, there was once again a surge uh, of, of, of talk about Pakhtunistan. Uh, but, 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 but during, ironically, during the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, the, 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 the question of Pakhtunistan died out. 
uh, uh, and instead the Pakistani uh, state supported um, uh, Pakhtun uh, militias uh, that were fighting the Afghan, Afghan government. Uh, and there were tensions of another kind uh, in, the north, uh, in, the, in the then Northwest Frontier Province between indigenous Pakhtuns and those and Afghans who, who are also Pakhtuns. Uh, so I think that this ethnicity as a primary prism to understand Pakistan or if, for that matter, India or any other country is full of problems, full of problems uh, and is best sort of looked at critically than, rather than an explanatory value of, of anything. Pashtunistan obviously never managed to form an independent nation, but East Pakistan, what is now Bangladesh, did manage to separate from the rest of Pakistan. But apart from the obvious geographical advantage of having 1,500 kilometers of India separating them from the rest of Pakistan, how did they manage to pull away when Baluchistan and Pashtunistan couldn't manage it? Well, for the for one thing, they were not contiguous to uh, the majority area. I mean, to, to the majority province of Punjab, which is where Pakistan's army is drawn from primarily. Uh, and you had a thousand miles of Indian territory, and you had long-standing grievances. Um, and the Bengalis. Um, I think it's important for your for your listeners to know. Um, constituted the majority population, but the majority population was denied their right uh, to call the shots in the state of Pakistan, which consisted before 71 of East and West. Uh, The West had uh, uh, the dominance because it was an institutional dominance of the army and the bureaucracy, predominantly Punjabi. Um, And and so Bengalis uh, had some very genuine grievances, uh, both political, economic, and of course, not, 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 let me not sort of forget cultural grievances. Um, so I think there, I mean, the, 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 and after the 1970 elections, which interestingly enough was the first one on the basis of Universal Adal franchise um, and w- was won by the Awami League led by Sheikh Majibur Rahman um, and the failure of the, 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 the then regime, the military regime to transfer power to the, to the, to the, to the, uh, to, to the Awami League uh, because there was another party, uh, namely the Pakistan People's Party, led by uh, 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 Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, who couldn't <clears throat> uh, make, come to terms with the Awami League. Um, uh, I mean, that's what really led to the split. Um, uh, and of course, India intervened in that. Uh, and so I think it's important to recognize that short of an intervention of the kind that occurred in Bangladesh, uh, a, a, a secessionist movement is very unlikely to succeed. We've been through this a couple of times in previous episodes, but during the Russian invasion of Afghanistan, Pakistan was instrumental for the US, helping to smuggle arms and fighters across the Afghan border to help fight the Soviets. Why would Pakistan help the US here? What were they hoping to gain from that relationship? Well, I mean, Pakistan and uh, America have had a a very sort of... uh, 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 I mean, it's it's a contractual arrangement. I mean, they don't necessarily have the same geostrategic interests. I mean, going back to the 50s when Pakistan joined American-backed security alliances such as CETO, CENTO, um, Pakistan joined them because it wanted to raise a shield of defense against India, its its premier enemy. And the United States uh, brought Pakistan in in the hope of using its army uh, to further its cause of containing communism. So both, it was a mutually sort of... uh, 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 I mean, it, they, 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 there was a disagreement on, on, on the reasons that they came together. They both had their own interests. Um, when, uh, I mean, and so Pakistan and America have had a, a, a rather sort of uh, 
uh, you know, unstable relationship over the years. Um, uh, first, uh, in 65, when the war between India and Pakistan broke out, Pakistan was heavily dependent at that time on American ammunition, arms and ammunition. America cut off arms and ammunition because of the war, and Pakistan suffered more than India. I mean, they, they cut it off to both countries, but uh, uh, India was also dependent on Soviet arms, uh, not, not to say producing its own. Um, so that was the first sort of uh, shock for Pakistanis who felt that America was unreliable. Uh, but then again, the Soviet invasion changed all that. Uh, but as soon as the Soviets departed, uh, America again forgot about Pakistan and Pakistan came back on the radar of the United States uh, really after 9-11. Uh, so if you look at the history of the relationship, uh, it's not surprising. I mean, your question is why would Pakistan do it? I think Pakistan, by the time 9-11 rolls on, uh, at least its army is firmly in control of the defense and foreign policy of the country um, and pursues its own interests, regardless of whatever arrangement they have with America. Um, so I would say that the re relationship is more operational um, uh, than it is strategic. And Pakistan has been very involved in Afghan politics ever since. So why would Pakistan be so invested in what happens in Afghanistan? Pakistan does not want uh, a pro-India government in Afghanistan, which would mean that it would then be sandwiched from two sides, the, both the the Northwest and the, and the East uh, by India or pro-Indian elements. And so it, it, the fear of a pincer movement has been the strategic doctrine of the Pakistan army that it is not, it, 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 first of all, it, it believes it's invested a great deal in Afghanistan uh, ever since uh, 79 uh, and even longer and doesn't want a pro-Delhi uh, pro government, New Delhi government. Uh, and so that's been the primary justification for their interference, um, uh, uh, which is criti criticized by many elements within Pakistan, uh, in Afghanistan. And I think that is the primary reason um, for Pakistan uh, wanting to continue to sort of at least maintain some sort of a relationship with the Taliban. Uh, but because of that relationship, they become valuable for the U.S. when the U.S. doesn't want to Finish, finish off the Taliban because it can't and then wants to negotiate with them. So when you want to negotiate with a, a group like the Taliban, then you need somebody who can actually talk to them, and that's Pakistan. And those tensions with India are incredibly important to keep the lid on, as both India and Pakistan both possess nuclear weapons. Even incredibly rich nations like Germany and Japan don't have nuclear weapons. So how do Pakistan, who has a very low GDP, managed to get a hold of nuclear weapons. It was to offset uh, the calamity of 1971, i.e. the loss of East Pakistan, uh, and to restore some degree of international stature. I mean, after you lose your majority population and one uh, major chunk of your territory, um, uh, it was seen to sort of diminish Pakistan's international posture and one way to restore it uh, by the then government uh, in that in, in this instance, it was Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto, uh, a long-standing proponent of nuclearization, um, uh, took the opportunity to, 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 to go for, the, for, for a nuclear weapons program. Uh, so that was the primary justification. So what I'm trying to say is that Pakistan's reasons were much broader, but when India uh, blasted its first bomb in 74, um, uh, then the justification was even stronger. Um, and by 78, 79, arguably, Pakistan was well on its way to developing uh, a nuclear uh, weapon. Um, and, and I would say that it was able to do so uh, partly because of determination, 
uh, and 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 the support that was given uh, by the state, uh, the finances, and of course uh, an international armaments market where purchasing parts was very easy. Uh, and I think that itself is something that the West needs to look at. Um, and I think it's been commented upon by many analysts that it was very easy to buy various parts surreptitiously and 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 make the bomb. I mean, the bomb uh, was was. I mean, the story is well known. Uh, but they they acquired the weapons. I mean, the the, the parts for this from various uh, from from various parts of the world. Uh, and so the armaments market was uh, uh, quite. Uh, uh, I mean, it, it was quite accessible. Is what I'm trying to say for Pakistan. Is there any nation in particular that gave Pakistan a lot of help in this area? China helped a great deal, let's not forget. China was a major ally um, and China had its own reasons to support Pakistan because its relationship with India, as you're aware, um, um, uh, is, is, it has its own sort of uh, wrinkles. During the Cold War, Pakistan was a close ally of the US against the Soviets. But these days, the relationship is a lot more complicated. They are technical allies of the US, but at the same time, they're very close with China, and the U.S. conduct frequent drone strikes into Pakistan, killing civilians on a pretty regular occasion. You know, how would you sum up the relationship between Islamabad, the capital of Pakistan, and Washington? Well, I mean, the U.S. relationship with Pakistan really has been a relationship between the U.S. Uh, 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 state and the Pakistan army. The people of Pakistan have not really benefited from this, nor have the Americans been particularly concerned about the, what the people of Pakistan think or need. Uh, and I think that's the principal weakness. I think I've implied in my earlier responses to you that the relationship is based on mutually contradictory uh, interests. Uh, so it's always been a difficult relationship uh, and will continue to be so. I mean, Pakistan's an important country because of its geostrategic location. Um, and the Americans will continue to sort of, uh, at, at particular moments, uh, uh, try and extract the maximum advantage they can. Uh, but Pakistan is not without some cards uh, in its hands. Uh, so it is a very, it will be negotiated, it has to be negotiated. It's not going to be an easy relationship for the new Biden administration. Uh, but it's, it's one that they're aware they need to somehow straighten out a bit in order to uh, achieve the minimum goals that they have vis-a-vis uh, -vis Afghanistan. Pakistan, first of all, is, is, is the American link to the Taliban. Uh, uh, Pakistan has played a role in whatever uh, discussions uh, have been taking place between um, the U.S. And, and the Taliban. So I think Pakistan has that card. Pakistan has an army that's all powerful and very crucial. Um, and so for operational reasons, the United States does need that sort of an institution um, uh, to do its bidding when, 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 when it wants it to do. Uh, to do that. So I do think that uh, Pakistan will continue to be important. Um, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's possible that 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 that, the, that they decide that they don't want, they can just sort of work with India, but I think that will be a peril more than anything else. One of the big strategic weaknesses Pakistan has is the country's reliance on the Indus River, which at some points is only 70 kilometers away from the Indian front line. They rely on this river for water, food, transport, and many other things. So I want to know how important is the Indus River to Pakistan and is there a risk of it being used as a weakness against the country? Well, it's the lifeblood of Pakistan. So I think it's a, it's a vital uh, element. Pakistan's a predominantly still, I mean, depends on agriculture. I think the future, I mean, in terms of strategic interests, Pakistan's water scarcity. Pakistan's a lower riparian in India. Well, that's the other factor 
Um, I mean, people typically see India, Pakistan through the religious prism, uh, which is false, um, uh, but primarily, uh, and not through the through, through 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 the sort of strategic issues that are presented by the fact that India is the upper riparian, controls the water, and Pakistan is extremely worried uh, about being dried out. And I mean, if, if, if there is if India shuts the water, uh, uh, and I mean that would be war effectively. Uh, so I think that that, that, the, that it is the lifeline, it's the lifeline of the people and of the country. So there's a huge uh, role that the Indus River plays. I mean, the Indus River has been a defining uh, feature of Pakistan's and for that matter, the subcontinent's uh, history as well. And what sort of projects are India looking at to get a better strategic position on the Indus River? There's a huge building uh, uh, effort going on in Kashmir, which is, of course, intended to further India's infrastructural uh, interventions in the area and consolidate its hold over the area. Uh, and that could enable India to shut down water at its at its whim whenever it wants to, whenever it suits its interests. So that's a threat that hangs over Pakistan and, and, and is partly to explain the, 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 the sort of nervous um, uh, tension that exists between the two countries. And if India was successful in these projects and managed to cut the water supply to Pakistan, what do you think the likely outcome would be? Well, I think it will be war. And I mean, I mean, whatever it takes to fight that war. I mean, if you starve Pakistan of water, I think that will be an act of war. And, 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 And I can't sort of tell you exactly how Pakistan will operate, but certainly China will be a factor. As indeed the Pakistan army will be, uh, and I think that that will be seen as an act of war, and that in itself is, is is something that one has to try and avoid, given the fact that the two countries are nuclear. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Of the many problems that surround Pakistan, India is the one the country takes most seriously with both India and Pakistan trying to get one up on the other to make sure they have a bigger pile in case the day of war were to ever break out. Pakistan supports extremists in India, and then India responds by building dams that could be devastating to the Pakistani water supply, adding more and more fuel to this pile, hoping that it never actually lights up. But what is each side trying to achieve here? How is each one planning to get the one up on the other? And how are Pakistan's informal relationships with groups like the Taliban going to play into all of this? Well, for that, we turn to our second guest. Part 2. New Winds for an Old Sail Pakistan's not what uh, folks would expect. Uh, I think the city of Lahore rivals um, any of the the, uh, 
the cities in South Asia. I mean, it, it, it's a city. For example, Lahore has an incredibly sophisticated food culture. It has um, forts. It has uh, a lot of of, of history. Um, Karachi is similar to Bombay in many ways. Um, it, I, Pakistanis and Indians are surprised when I tell them that, but I see a lot of similarities between their, those two coastal cities. Um, and Karachi is very much a melting pot of the entire uh, country of Pakistan. Every ethnic, ethnic group is represented there. Um, and uh, Peshawar uh, is one of the, which is in Khyber Pashtunkhwa, is one of the most interesting cities I've been to. It still feels like a city that's on the frontier, and there's still a certain... In, in, in Peshawar and cities like Mardan and Khyber Pashtunkhwa, there's still um, there's still a feeling that things could go wrong. I, I guess it's a, it's a vibe you get, but it's 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 well worth the visit. Adam Weinstein is a research fellow for the Quincy Institute, focusing on Afghanistan and Pakistan. He's also a former veteran serving in Afghanistan for the United States, and still regularly reports on the region. He joins us today. The the military in Pakistan does have um, a history of interfering with civilian politics. And there's, there's sort of a dysfunctional relationship between the dynastic political figures in, in, in Pakistan and the military o- over uh, history. So, sometimes people refer to Pakistan as a hybrid regime, meaning that it is a democracy, but there's elements within Pakistan that are not democratic. Um, so... It is a very vibrant democracy. There was just in uh, elections that proved to be an upset for the uh, uh, party of Prime Minister Imran Khan. But the military still has a say that that is significant. It has a it has a veto power, you could say. When you look at a map of Pakistan, the thing that really sticks out is the fact that the majority of their major cities, whether it be Karachi or Lahore or Islamabad, are all very close to the Indian border, usually somewhere between 100 and 200 kilometers away. How does Pakistan feel about having many of their major cities so close to the Indian front lines? I think that's a point of insecurity. I mean, I I think what a lot of uh, folks outside of South Asia don't realize is that there's there's constant uh, skirmishes along the line of control, which is the the disputed border that separates um, parts of of India and Pakistan. The the, the danger of South Asia is that you have these two nuclear armed uh, powers that if they miscalculate. Um, if they miscalculate uh, the the action of the other, you can easily have a, a, a nuclear exchange um, because there just simply isn't that much time for either side to make a decision. Um, and some folks would would have argued that um, the fact that both of them are nuclear powers has prevented uh, conflicts from becoming much larger, larger, and kept kept the the conflicts between the, the military conflicts between these two countries at a smaller scale because neither side wants it to escalate into a nuclear exchange. But on, on the other side of the coin, it the liability or the risk that results from escalating tensions between India and Pakistan is much greater than in other parts of the world um, simply because they're both nuclear armed. One of Washington's primary concerns with India and Pakistan is that a 
a Pakistani-backed terrorist group uh, will spark a nuclear exchange between the two countries. And when I say Pakistani-backed, it could mean that Pakistan's supporting the anti-India terrorist group or simply uh, turning the other cheek and allowing them to exist uh, freely inside uh, Pakistan's territory. So there was a 2016 terrorist attack on an Indian army base in Uri. And then um, there was a 2019 terrorist attack on a paramilitary convoy in Palwama in an Indian-administered Kashmir. And these kinds of events are what, uh, what ring alarm bells in Washington because they lead to exchanges between the conventional militaries of the two countries, which can uh, quickly, quickly get out of hand. So this is one of the reasons that Pakistan, for example, is, is on the FATF uh, gray list. Um, and the FATF is uh, the Financial Action uh, Task Force. And um, it's, it's, it's um, an intergovernment uh, task force, essentially, that places countries that have issues with terror financing or money laundering on either a gray list or a black list. And right now, Pakistan is on the gray list. And that's that's due partially to try to convince Pakistan to change the way it approaches uh, these anti-India groups. But from the from the U.S. side, the main concern is not so much the terrorism aspect of it as, as what the terrorism could spark, the, the reaction in India it could spark, or alternatively, um, a, a miscalculation by Pakistan's side if things escalate. So, for example, uh, in the future, there could be a terrorist attack inside Indian-administered Kashmir. The Indian military responds by conventional means. The Pakistani side miscalculates and thinks that a, a nuclear attack is imminent and, and strikes first or vice versa. That's, that's the concern from Washington's standpoint. And that's what makes the, the, the conflict on the border between India and Pakistan so dangerous. I want to just understand the time frames here. Pakistan's capital, Islamabad, is only about 100 kilometers or 62 miles away from the Indian front lines. A large surprise Indian attack, unlikely as that would be, would only give Pakistani leadership a very short window of discussion here to decide what to do. The worry here being the use it or lose it mentality when it comes to their nuclear weapons. How long roughly would Pakistan have to make a decision regarding their nuclear weapons if India were to make a big push to capture Islamabad? And to put our minds at ease here, how likely do you think an Indian surprise attack on Pakistan would actually be to take place? You might look at South Asia and say there's many priorities and many risks in South Asia, but this risk of a nuclear exchange, the consequences are so dire that um, it needs to be prioritized above uh, other concerns, um, even though the likelihood that it would occur is, is, is low. Um, I, I think that the United States has, has been able to play somewhat of a mediator role in the past. That ability is diminishing and it's partly due to the adoption of of what the trump administration called uh, the indo-pacific strategy um and and uh the biden administration appears to be continuing on that path where india is viewed as a, a natural partner against uh rising chinese influence in in both uh 
the Pacific, Southeast Asia, and also in the Indian Ocean. And the trouble with that is that the closer that the United States appears to be with India, the less effective of a mediator it can can be between Pakistan and India. It won't be seen as a as an objective mediator. So I think that 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 policy change in the United States has increased the risk slightly. Staying at Washington here, obviously the war in Afghanistan is winding down. There's not nearly as many operations as there were back in 2001. So why are the Americans still so involved in Pakistan if there's not as many operations going on in the area? Well, I, number one, Pakistan has over 200 million people. It's um, a nuclear power. It has um, economic potential. It uh, has a close relationship with China. It borders Iran, India, Afghanistan. So it's... Its location in the world will always make it important to the United States. Um, but right now, the United States uh, is, still sees Pakistan as a vital partner for resolving the conflict in Afghanistan. Now, when I say vital partner, I don't necessarily mean cooperative partner because Pakistan and the United States have different interests in Afghanistan. So from, from the U.S. perspective, the best case scenario for Afghanistan is that it's a... Um, relatively stable democracy, even if it has uh, Taliban influence and in, in the final model of its government, um, it, at least it's a, a democracy that's relatively stable and doesn't become an uh, area where transnational terrorist groups can operate. From the Pakistani perspective, those priorities are a bit different. The worst case scenario in Afghanistan for Pakistan is that it becomes a country that's extremely close to or reliant on India. Um, if, if, if Afghanistan becomes an unstable country that um, dissolves into civil war, that's not a good outcome for Pakistan, but it's still better than in, in Afghanistan that's India aligned. And if you look at the peace agreement, the, the leaked peace agreement that it was supposedly drafted by the Biden administration, um, and it's, it's supposed to be a peace agreement between the Afghan government and the Taliban. Um, if you look at the outline for the transitional government, they say that Afghanistan should have a non-aligned foreign policy. There's a reason for that. That's to calm the nerves of, of Pakistan to some degree. Um, and there's other reasons for it as well. So right now, what the U.S. gets out of the relationship with Pakistan is that it, 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 it's, it, can, it knows that it cannot resolve the conflict in Afghanistan without the help of Pakistan. Um, Pakistan helped bring the Taliban to the negotiating table, but uh, they have either been unwilling or unable to exert uh, greater uh, control over the Taliban or extract um, extract further concessions. So, and I think the other the other reason that um, the U.S. prioritizes Pakistan is they still see Pakistan itself as a counterterrorism risk or terrorism risk rather. Um, and outside of Pakistan's support for the Taliban, it has been a relatively good partner on, on counterterrorism issues, especially with groups like Al Qaeda. So I, I think the U.S. still views Pakistan as a key counterterrorism partner against groups that will continue to exist regardless of what happens in Afghanistan. Um, 
And then lastly, there is the there is a there is an economic relationship. There are significant people to people ties. There is a large Pakistani diaspora in the United States. These are less important. Pakistan wishes they were more important. Um, the advisor to Prime Minister Imran Khan, um, Moeed Yusuf, uh, has gone on record at several times saying that they want it to be a geoeconomic relationship between the U.S. and Pakistan rather than a geostrategic one. They want to focus on trade, not aid. They want to focus on increasing Pakistan's exports to the United States. Um, but I think so far in Washington, the the emphasis remains a security-based relationship. The relationship between Washington and Islamabad has always been quite complicated, and I think a good e example of this one is the Bin Laden raid. The United States went into the raid not informing Pakistan uh, under the guise that they could not trust the ISI to not give Bin Laden pre-warning. Do you think this is a symptom of the fact that Washington could only really rely on the ISI when their objectives match up, not when their objectives go against each other? I don't even like to look at it as uh, through trust. I would no, I wouldn't trust Pakistan. I think you have to look at okay, where do U.S. and Pakistani interests align? And when the interests align, then you don't have to worry about trust. And when the interests don't align, well, um, trust is a moot point because the interests don't align. So I I, I wouldn't go out and say that um, I wouldn't advise U.S. policymakers to trust uh, Pakistan's security establishment. But I actually think. That's that that focus on um, duplicity versus trust, and uh, this idea that Pakistan is double dealing. I think it's an it, it, it's a flawed way to look at the relationship. Pakistan has its own concerns. The United States has its own concerns. Um, and uh, when 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 those priorities align, then Pakistan has, you know, in, in the cases where those priorities have aligned, Pakistan has been a helpful partner. And when those priorities don't align, they haven't. I'd, I, I'm not sure that uh, the United States can influence Pakistan's fundamental security calculations, uh, especially as they relate to India. And so what they have to accept is that you can affect Pakistan's behavior, but you can't change the underlying calculations that shape that behavior. And just accept the limitation of U.S. influence over, over Pakistan, which is something that the foreign policy establishment in, in the United States doesn't like to do. I think the foreign policy establishment in the United States very, very much assumes that if all countries were engaged in real politic and were being rational, that the, they all have the same interests and they, they don't. Trust is just not the way to look at the relationship. It's a, it's a relationship that, that is, is, is predicated on um, occasionally overlapping interests. When they didn't tell the ISI they were coming for the bin Laden raid, it was the worry that the ISI was far too tied in with the Taliban. What is Islamabad's relationship with the Taliban like today? The links between the Taliban and the Pakistani state right now are weaker than they have been in the past. So generally, Washington exaggerates the amount of influence that Pakistan has over the Taliban, and, Islam and Islamabad uh, under-exaggerates um, or de-emphasizes this relationship. And the reality probably lands somewhere in the middle. 
um, the current leadership of of the Taliban is a little bit more hardline than it was um, in the recent past, and and so I think uh, Pakistan has a little bit less influence over over that leadership. That being said, the senior much of the senior leadership of the Taliban lives in and around Quetta, which is in Pakistan. So when the Pakistanis say, well, we don't have control over the Taliban, the obvious um, answer to that is, well, what do you mean? You could definitely make their life more difficult. The question is, would that be in the interest of Pakistan? Uh, And I think Pakistan is concerned about its Afghan refugee population and um, its Pashtun tribal population. And I, I think that the majority of Pakistani Pashtuns are not supportive of the Afghan Taliban, but it's a concern that the Pakistani state has, which is that if it takes too hard of a line against the Afghan Taliban, it will come back to haunt them um, through alliances uh, between the Afghan Taliban and non-state actors inside Pakistan. Um I don't think that Pakistan regrets its relationship with the Taliban. I think Pakistan views the Afghan Taliban as a political reality in Afghanistan that they have to contend with. I do think that there might be some sympathy within Pakistan's security establishment for the struggle that the Afghan Taliban have experienced. Um, but it's hard to say. The majority of the Pakistani public is not sympathetic to the Afghan Taliban, but they're certainly not sympathetic to the U.S.-led uh, invasion of Afghanistan and its its 20-year occupation there. So I, I, I think it, it, it's not so much regret, but Pakistan very much wants to move past this era of being viewed as... Um, a frenemy to Washington in the context of the war in Afghanistan. It wants Afghanistan to be an afterthought and for the relationship to move from geostrategic to geoeconomic, which is the terminology that their their strategic comms uses. Um, but that's a bit delusional because until Washington either leaves Afghanistan militarily or there's a political settlement the relationship between Pakistan and Washington is going to be haunted by the relationship between uh, Pakistan and the Taliban. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The U.S. needs Pakistan for logistics and to help keep the lid on the situation in Afghanistan. And for a long time, the U.S. were really the only major power putting the effort into Pakistan. But that's all changing. Another great power is now firmly entrenched in the fabric of Pakistan. 
With that great power now having everything from military cooperation to naval facilities to highways that could prove a lifeline for that power in the event of a large-scale war. An entire great power's plan B strategy is reliant on Pakistan. And to talk more about that, we turn to our third guest. Part 3. Deep Ports and Deeper Pockets For Pakistan, India is understood to be the existential threat. Uh, everything is essentially constructed around uh, the India question. Um, and historically, that has been the case. Pakistan was, of course, um, in, in, even in recent decades, has, has effectively been dismembered um, in a war with, with India. Um, India is, is, is understood to be uh, the 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 sort of blood rival um, in a way that uh, no other threat, even many of the internal threats that the country has faced, um, have been seen as anything comparable. India isn't just the 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 blood rival next door. It's also um, uh, it also looms considerably uh, larger in Pakistan's imagination uh, than vice versa. Andrew Small is a senior transatlantic fellow with the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund, a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, and also holds a visiting fellowship at the Australian National University Security College in Canberra. Andrew has written a number of books on this subject and is a highly regarded expert when it comes to Beijing's influence in the region. He joins us today. The defensive strategy is asymmetric in nature. It's essentially structured around the nuclear program. Uh, it's It's been the threat for some time that Pakistan can uh, at least hold India's major cities at risk and that it has an arsenal that's strong enough to, uh, to, to maintain that threat. Um, and also that there are increasingly, that if there's an invasion um, on India's part, there is also this looming question of whether this would turn into nuclear conflict. Too. This has been the question around tactical nuclear weapons on, on, on the Pakistani side, which, which Pakistan um, has developed uh, as well. Um, but they've had considerable, they have considerable conventional uh, forces as well. I mean, the, Pakistan is structured uh, primarily around the, the army itself. It's set up to, uh, to, to conduct land wars primarily. That's, that's been the entire mode of thinking, and its defenses um, are, are primarily directed at, uh, at, at, its, eastern, at its eastern borders. Um, the, the, the nuclear capabilities have only been there uh, in a formally declared way, of course, um, fully uh, since, since the 90s. But I mean, this, this is a program that's been in place uh, much, much longer, um, and that's seen to be the kind of existential defense against the existential threat. It's only around 100 kilometers between the Indian front lines and Islamabad. So, first of all, does Pakistan have any capability of defending against a very large push from India? And how far in do you think the Indians would have to push before the Pakistanis considered a nuclear retaliation? Well, I mean, you, you, you've had in, in the wars in the past, I mean, if, particularly if you, if you consider that uh, the arguably Pakistan's most important and prosperous region and and where actually most of the army are from, which is Punjab, is directly on the Indian border. Um, it doesn't take much of a of a 
uh, of, of a move across into Pakistani territory uh, before you're um, b- before you're in in sight of Lahore. Uh, so, and, and this has happened before. I mean, you've you've, you've had Indian troops by uh, in 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 sight of Lahore Airport, and um, I, I I think the the sense and the the risk and the the anxiety that's been there. Um, for people looking from the outside at, at Pakistan and India, uh, is that they are so flat, uh, flush up against each other. Um, if there was some sort of a, a conventional um, invasion, um, then the likelihood of escalation into nuclear territory in a way that, you know, of course, was not the case um, back in the the country. Kind of full-scale wars that were were, were fought um, in 1971 or, or, or 1965 um, would the, the risk of it moving into that zone is is, is extremely high. Um, and the other piece of this, of course, though, is that um, with 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 Kashmir, uh, the the attempt on Pakistan's part at, at points has also, and the other piece of the asymmetric strategy uh, has been to use non-conventional forces um, has been to use militant outfits uh, and create some level of deniability uh, around the sorts of attacks that it's it's undertaken um, and attempts to localize this essentially to Kashmir in the past um, have, have have been one of the uh, given that this is the territory that Pakistan would like to claim for itself in its totality uh, the, this this has also been the the, the, the kind of military approach that Pakistan has um, has has utilized against India for, uh, for 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 some time. So the closest, of course, that we've ever come to these conflicts have come uh, have come about as a result of some of these asymmetric, non-conventional uh, tactics that Pakistan has pursued. We won't go too deep into the history of Kashmir because we've already covered that quite extensively in our India piece. And if you want to know the backstory, I recommend you listen to that before you go to this one. The capture of Kashmir has been a huge objective for both sides here. But what actual strategic benefit would either side gain if they were to actually conquer their entire Kashmiri claims from the other one? I, I mean, there is a question about whether this is, is fully understood in uh, strategic military terms um, or or that this, I mean, certainly on, on Pakistan's part and, and on India's part, the, the, these are treated as kind of... Uh, foundational identity, uh, deep kind of claims that the two sides have um, that I, I, I think don't necessarily verge into uh, questions as much of the kind of specific utility that control of particular territory would 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 have for uh, for other purposes. I mean, of course, on on India's part, this does go to. Uh, I mean, if 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 you're looking at the, the the territory in question, and, and you're looking at how um, uh, how the Pakistan uh, Kashmir in its most expansive definition um, that would also include Gilgit Baltistan, um, the former Northern Territories. If you include this too, uh, th- th- this goes even to the, the the question of whether Pakistan itself has a border with with, with China, um, and this is one of the questions that is 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 there for India. This is one of the sensitivities specifically about some of these activities in. Um, in Gilgit-Baltistan and the Krakram Highway itself, um, uh, that from India's perspective, that the, there evidently would be uh, a difference um, if it controlled all of that 
territory and um, effectively expanded its um, its it, it, its borders with 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 China instead. But um, I think this is uh, th- this is this is primarily something that runs deeper than, um, than 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 some of these kind of strategic and tactical considerations. Before we talk a lot more about China, I want to talk about the Pakistani western border one shares with Iran. Obviously, between the two, they share Balochistan, which the Baluch have been pushing for independence. But is the relationship between Islamabad and Tehran deeper than just keeping the lid on Balochistan? Do they work together on a lot of these issues? Uh, the relationship between between Pakistan and Iran has has a whole uh, series of, of of different dimensions to it. Of, of course, Pakistan also has a has a reasonable sized. Um, uh, Shia population um, itself. Um, uh, there's the 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 neighbours. There's 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 a substantial um, history and political and security relationships and, and, and dynamics that, that exist between the two sides. Certainly, there's there's um, the, there is a level of focus and has been in 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 the past on the specifics of um, what's playing out in the. The, the the regions that directly border each other in in in, in Balochistan, um, but it, it it's a much wider and, and and more expansive and 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 richer um, relationship than than something that can be boiled down to that. That has been particularly some of the cross border activities at points. At points have have been sources of of, of real tension between uh, b- between the two sides. Um, but even if you look at um, uh, for instance, uh, Chabahar and 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 um, and Gwadar as, as as ports, there are potential cooperative frameworks that are in place there as well, and 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 have been discussed between uh, the two sides. So um, I, I I think there's there's still different models for for how this evolves. You have to of course look at the fact that um, the closest relationship that um, Pakistan has, despite Iran being its its, its neighbour um, in um, the Persian Gulf, is with Saudi Arabia. Um, and if Saudi Arabia, uh, if, if Iran were to acquire a nuclear weapon, uh, I think the expectation is that it would be Pakistan um, that would uh, help Sa- the Saudis uh, acquire the same capacities of its own. So you, you do have the Saudi dimension um, there in, in in the background uh, as well, and, and the extremely close economic and, and and financial and and political and military linkages that exist between um, Pakistan and, and 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 the Saudis that, that, that don't exist in, in in the same way, and, and there's never been a relationship of the same sort between uh, Iran and Pakistan. Why is there such a close relationship between Islamabad and Riyadh? Apart from religion, what do these two work on together? I mean the. In, in a sense, uh, I mean, if you, if you, the, 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 there's different dimensions to this. Um, there has been this kind of question with the Pakistani nuclear weapon as to whether it is a um, uh, an instrument purely of national interest, uh, or, or whether it also has the quality of of kind of protection for the uh, the most sensitive sites in um, the Islamic world as well. Oh, and this 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 has been one of the the, the questions at, at stake that again goes beyond national interest and some of the commercial dimensions and uh, that that exist between um, the, the the Saudis and and, and the Pakistanis. Um, this 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 would um, th- th- this would be a different kind of conception of the security role that um, Pakistan has played. But of course, they've also provided uh, considerable uh, support already in conventional terms to. 
to the Saudis and you know, personnel and, and and all sorts of other ways. Pakistan has a very capable military um, uh, that has um, significant combat experience and um, uh, significant prowess in 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 ways that um, uh, the, the Saudis. Uh, arguably, do not um, to, to to the same extent. Um, so the sort of heightened role that Pakistan plays in that regard. Uh, but I mean, for for Pakistan, Saudi Arabia has been one of the uh, financial lifelines um, as well. It's it, it it's it's been consistently willing to provide either direct um, financing or oil or um, other other means of support uh, to Pakistan when it's been in a difficult spot in a way that um, until recently, um, uh, which we've started to see with China, had, had really not been the, the, the case on such a consistent basis. Um, there's, there's a kind of a, a, a fairly deep nexus between, between the two sides, which um, if we go back even to the nuclear program, there's certainly some additional support that uh, the Saudis provided to, uh, to 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 help finance uh, that program as well. Um, at a point where uh, few others, by way of external support, um, uh, would, would would have been involved in um, in in and, and willing to 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 provide anything in in this regard. Again, apart from um, in a very different way, China itself. I think another really interesting relationship is the one between Turkey and Pakistan. Right now, Turkey is supplying quite a lot of the Pakistani navy. And Pakistan will be building Turkish-designed ships in the next few years. How did this relationship between Ankara and Islamabad come about? Turkey and, and Pakistan have maintained a relatively healthy economic relationship. Turkey plays with with with, with a number of the um, uh, the major actors in 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 the region. Um, the kind of pan-Turkic links, um, of course, as well, give it a say and a, a, and a stake and and a set of uh, relationships um, in in some of these places that mean that it's um, it, it, it's a voice that Pakistan and others have to have to take into account. I don't think there's any relationship in the entire world that better sums up the phrase frenemy than the one between Washington and Islamabad. There are frequent drone strikes from Washington into Pakistan. Washington doesn't trust Pakistan and everything. And at the same time, Pakistan is becoming more and more closely tied with Beijing, one of the principal enemies for Washington in the area. How would you sum up the relationship between Washington and Pakistan? The relationship has tended to be instrumentalized um, particularly around what's playing out in, in Afghanistan. It was a different kind of quality of relationship before um, when the kind of concept of Pakistan as a, as a non-NATO ally uh, kind of had, had a sense of a kind of wider strategic role that Pakistan occupied in, in, in the region. You know, the U.S. was able to operate Important, for instance, listening facilities um, in in the country that were uh, played a much bigger sort of role in in Pakistan's economic development. Um, and this was also during a time when you know, India, um, uh, although at points this would kind of fluctuate, that the, there were certainly phases where where India was seen as as pursuing a kind of more Soviet uh, tilt, and and so Pakistan was 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 still the the, the country that had its you know, close relations with the U.S. military. Pakistan was allowed to be used as the critical supply route for Afghanistan, uh, of course, as well, when, of, of even greater importance when, when the war in Afghanistan escalated. Um, 
uh, and this this meant both for sort of uh, ground routes and air routes. And then at a certain period of time, Pakistan also did allow the United States to conduct drone strikes on its territory. These were taking place with Pakistani permission um, for um, uh, in terms of the kind of the targeting locations and 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 and. and uh, the the, the in, in many cases the targets themselves were, were coordinated with with Pakistan. There was always this deniability and kind of public criticism would be would be expressed on the Pakistani side, but but in private this was something that they had uh, they, they they had allowed to to happen. Uh, you then had junctures where this these tensions just blew up to an incredible degree um, uh, over the concerns about kind of U.S. personnel operating at liberty seemingly in the country. Um, uh, the kind of tensions over the uh, over the border, which at one point involved kind of a cross-border incident that saw a number of Pakistani uh, troops killed. And then the bin Laden raid was a kind of embodiment of that lack of trust um, between the two sides. Um, and I think a sense... Uh, you know, on, on on the U.S. side, that um, you know, it was still some deep suspicion about the fact that Bin Laden himself seemed to be being harbored by Pakistan in a comfortable location, and that was an ambiguity that was never cleared up. And on Pakistan's part, the fact that the U.S. could um, kind of sweep into the country and conduct a, a raid of this sort um, caused a lot of anxiety about questions such as its nuclear arsenal um, as, as much as anything else. Um, and I think beyond some of that point, you've you've then had this in- sharp deterioration. The US has really been pushing Pakistan um, to uh, to stop the double game in, in, in Afghanistan um, and provide support to a peace process. The US itself had been very reluctant to pursue a peace process itself, um, uh, latterly turned to pushing Pakistan to bring the Taliban to the table. Um, the reason that we've um, seen the improvement actually in relations in the last couple of years uh, after really continued deterioration for all of these reasons um, uh, as as the US was, was was so unhappy with the role that Pakistan was was playing and in different ways Pakistan was so uh, fed up with um, the US uh, demands um, is that you've started to get more of a uh, of, of, of a view on Afghanistan that is consistent between between the two sides. The question for the United States is going to be: What role does Pakistan play in the wider scheme of um, the, the the region and and and, and the world um, when the, the entire focus of the relationship is not the war in Afghanistan? Um, the other dimension to this, obviously, though, is on the one hand India, uh, and on the other hand China, where um, the U.S. tilt towards India has changed the balance of of the role that. It, place in South Asia, it tended to have at least a more even-handed approach and, and at points historically did um, provide certain kinds of support to, to Pakistan. I, I think the sense is now that the US, um, for strategic reasons, will be tilting in India's direction. And so it means that when it comes to kind of the crises in South Asia, where uh, where the United States tended to kind of play this elevated role and would, would would work channels on both sides and things like that. Although that takes place to an extent, I think Pakistan now understands that um, it's not going to be the same kind of roughly even-handed role that the U.S. had played in the past. Um, and the U.S. is concerned in a very different way about the role that uh, China's been playing in uh, in, in Pakistan and what that's likely to, to, to amount to as, as well. And that's that's much more recent. The two sides, China and, and, and the United States, had really been able to coexist quite well. They had similar objectives in, in, in Pakistan. Um, they, there were similar things they wanted to, to, to see there. Uh, it's less clear now that that's as true, and that's starting to force some more difficult choices on, on the Pakistanis as well, who've 
And I think that brings us to the main crux of this story, which is China. China has been very heavily investing into Pakistan for the last few years, building up ports and roads and infrastructure in the hope that if the South China Sea were to ever be cut off, Pakistan could still be used to import goods from the south coast into the west of China. I'm very sure this relationship goes deeper than just that. But why is China so invested in Pakistan at the moment? We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. So you have to look at the fact that until recently, there was not understood to be a competition for influence at all with with Pakistan. There may have been kind of flashes back in the 60s and, and, and things like this. But I think the sense for some time was uh, for China, the strategic role that Pakistan plays is as a counterbalance to India, as a way of tying India down um, on its western borders and preventing India from, um, from, from being able to concentrate militarily or otherwise um, on the challenges that, that, that China poses. Um, and for it to occupy that role, uh, the, there are a number of kinds of support that China needs to, to provide. It needs Pakistan to kind of function relatively capably. Uh, it, it, it needs India to be constantly navigating these, these questions. It needs to have the asymmetric capability so that it's it's not in danger of, of being outright wiped out. There needs to be some level of stability between the two sides at the same point. Um, but that kind of, the view that says that there is an advantage in having a kind of roughly stable, roughly secure Pakistan that is economically prosperous um, and that is able to occupy a sort of solid role in looking out for various interests in the region, that's not been inconsistent with, with US interests as well. There have been points going back in time where uh, the Chinese actively wanted the United States to provide military equipment um, to the Pakistanis because they wanted them to have more capable forces to be able to occupy this role vis-a-vis -vis India. Um, and also at points, Pakistan had operated as a conduit for advanced technologies from the United States uh, to China itself. So China has not operated on the basis that a, a good US-Pakistan relationship is necessarily problematic. Um, in many ways, it's been advantageous. Uh, it strengthens Pakistan in all sorts of ways. Um, it reduces the willingness on the US part to uh, maintain this kind of tilt in India's direction. Um, and it also provides cover for the China-Pakistan relationship to play out in a way that doesn't get interfered with by sanctions or other forms of pressure. Uh, in the 90s, when the relationship between the United States and Pakistan uh, was more problematic, this is where you started to get the squeeze on things like missile sales, missile transfers from, 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 from China to Pakistan. Um, and some of the other technology support that they provided to the Pakistani uh, nuclear program. So until recently, it had been the case that um, 
yes, China has already deep influence in 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 the country, uh, but this but this is something that's been able to operate in, in in tandem with 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 the United States. And even that the two sides have had certain similar concerns about Islamization in the country, um, about whether Pakistan um, is 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 behaving as they would wish in Afghanistan. Some of these sorts of questions have been consistent between the two sides as well. Uh, the difference in the last. Uh, two to three years in particular, um, has been that um, with the US shift towards thinking more expansively about the Indo-Pacific rather than the Asia-Pacific, um, a kind of wider conception of the strategic competition with with, with China. Uh, you've, uh, and, and of course, the role that China and Pakistan has been playing and shifting considerably as well to take on a kind of more geoeconomic uh, quality and simply a much more expansive quality than than we'd seen in the past when it was highly constrained to a fairly narrow set of security ties between the two sides. You've started to see the two sides rubbing up against each other um, in, 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 in a very different way and in a more conflictual uh, way. Uh, this was kind of manifest most clearly when you had the sort of very strong U.S. position uh, of criticism directed at um, the China-Pakistan economic corridor, China's kind of big investment platform in the country in a way that I think surprised both the Chinese and the Pakistanis when, when it happened, because for some time, again, the U.S. side had been actively asking China to expand its uh, economic support to Pakistan and to play a larger role in that regard, because in South Asia, unlike other areas of competition between the United States and China, the, the interests just do look a bit different. They are more focused on militancy and terrorism and ensuring that Pakistan um, is, you know, in, in, in the worst scenario that I, I, I don't think was necessarily a plausible one, but that Pakistan doesn't become some kind of a failed state, um, uh, which, you know, was a high anxiety for the US, particularly in the, in, in the late 2000s, when you had a lot of the insurgent activity taking place um, in, in Pakistan. But if you start to look at this through the prism more of naval competition, um, uh, geostrategic influence, um, rather than the traditional questions that have been there on South Asia, then you can start to see why the the, the two sides are operating more at odds. And and again, the India dimension is is important here as well. In the same way that the US has decided that it needs to kind of tilt more in in India's direction, including on kind of scenarios that have involved kind of bilateral tensions between Pakistan and India. China, for its part, has, has seen some uh, rationale for tilting additionally um, to provide kind of countervailing support to uh, Pakistan um, in a way that in the past it may be at points been more reluctant to, to do so, particularly uh, in situations in which they'd seen the Pakistanis as, as relatively culpable for the, the kinds of situations that had been blowing up with, with, with India, given that it was Pakistan that was often instigating the kind of cross-border activities or uh, attacks, um, uh, whether it was Mumbai or Kargil or, or, or any of these kind of other um, uh, cases that we've, we, we've seen. Um, and now this puts Pakistan in, in, in a trickier uh, position, particularly navigating these tensions between uh, between China and, and the United States. And I don't think this has yet turned into something that is is kind of a clear battle for influence. Um, I think there's still a sense on Pakistan's part that they should be able to find uh, a way in which relations between the two sides can sort of coexist in a relatively benign way. But that's just become a much uh, trickier needle to, to thread. And I think with the Biden administration coming in, we're going to get a, a kind of a fresh round of questions about how the U.S. really 
sees uh, its relationship with 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 China in 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 the South Asian region. Certainly, the maritime competition is there, um, but it's not intrinsically clear that some of the kind of continental dimensions of of this that the U.S. is going to be at odds with China in Afghanistan or even in Pakistan itself. Um, that I think is 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 kind of. Uh, less of a set thing. I think there are some of the people even who are kind of close to uh, President Biden um, uh, who have kind of openly suggested that this should be simply an area that's deprioritized in the wider competition between the United States and China. Um, so we may yet see uh, a scenario in which um, it's not necessarily that the two sides would, would cooperate, but they may not be um, quite as fully at odds there as, as, as was starting to look to be the case in the last couple of years. The Karakoram Highway, the stretches from Western China through Pakistan to its southern coast, ending in the port of Guada, could be a huge lifeline for Beijing. It saves items having to go all the way around through the South China Sea and puts goods only 1,500 kilometers from Western China. If war were to ever fully break out and the South China Sea were blockaded by the United States, this may be China's only lifeline. The trouble is, though, that building this highway was incredibly difficult due to having to go through the Himalaya Mountains. And because they couldn't go through a certain mountain, the road is actually forced to cross into Indian-controlled territory for a few miles of the journey. With this in mind, do you think there is any risk of India calling in that claim? And is this one of the main reasons that China is not putting as much emphasis on this route as they probably should be? So there are still questions about really how good a logistical route this this actually is, p- partly for uh, reasons of, of the question that you, you ask as well. Um, if you travel up the Karakoram Highway, um, it's an extremely narrow corridor. Um, it's often been shut down by landslides, natural disasters, bad weather. Um, it's only been seasonally open anyway. Uh, so the idea that this gets transformed, even when you have an all-weather surface and all of these sorts of things on the road, the idea that this is really a kind of useful logistics corridor that can you know, kind of navigate the Malacca dilemma and, and these sorts of things has always collided with the kind of reality of the topography of of, of, of the country and, and the conditions that the KKH um, operates in. And that's even before you get to the question of Balochistan, where um, the levels of insecurity and the, the kind of um, uh, the, 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 the kind of militant activities that we've we, we've seen there. I mean, it's no surprise that that's the area of road construction for the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, where you've seen the largest number of people killed. Uh, not Chinese, but Pakistani workers there. Uh, so it, it's still rather difficult if you if if you then look at the the logistics of it to to see this as 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 a particularly viable route, unless you spend absolutely prodigious sums of money on. Uh, tunneling and a whole series of other things that would essentially harden the route um, against some of the, the the kind of natural obstacles that you have there. But in a wartime contingency as well, the capacity to cut it off um, is very, very obvious. Um, uh, it, it is even even in the scenario in which you, you did have the kind of, from India's perspective, the worst case scenario in which vast sums of money were spent on uh, hardening the route, constructing railway lines, none of which I should add is is in any way being envisaged at the moment. Even in this scenario, uh, the capacity to, 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 to shut it down extremely uh, quickly, um, either from non-conventional uh, actors inside Pakistan itself, 
or from um, strikes from outside. Uh, it, it's one of the more straightforward routes to, to cut down. And, and of course, China cares about um, finding additional logistical routes to bypass the Malacca Straits. It, it mattered a lot to, to China in the past as well, that it did have a kind of additional land route out from the country that could get to the um, the Indian Ocean. It, it's not that this has had no significance in in the kind of uh, political and strategic imagination of the two sides, um, but there are simply better and more viable routes and the scenarios in which you would need to have these are precisely the sorts of uh, scenarios uh, in which you could absolutely envisage um, what the, 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 the corridor route or the KKH actually being shut down. The other huge Chinese project at the moment is the port of Gwanda, which China has put a lot of money into. They effectively lent the Pakistanis a lot of money, and when the Pakistanis couldn't pay the debts back, China took it back in a 99-year lease to oversimplify things. This port is very crucial for China and is the deepest seawater port in the entire world. But it's in Baluchistan, which has its own problems. To which I have two questions. One, why did China put so much money into a port in southern Pakistan? And two, if attacks on Guana continue, will the Chinese simply just deploy their own troops to protect it in the thought that Pakistan may not be able to hold their own ground here? Guana has had this kind of ambiguous status. Um, firstly, between China and Pakistan on the naval side, China pretty much, the PLA Navy pretty much has carte blanche to use Pakistani facilities when it wants to. It already has ample use of Karachi. Gwadar, even kind of a little way up the coast from from Gwadar, Omara um, has now become one of the, I mean, really the principal base actually for the Pakistani uh, Navy. There is, there is no question that China sees benefit in um, the you know, reliable port facilities that it can expect to utilize in a crisis um, or in kind of any imaginable scenario. And when the PLA Navy does its assessments of kind of which port facilities in the world this might be true of, it's only really Pakistan that falls into the category where they where they believe this would be possible. So having a reliable um, set of well-functioning port facilities in the country that has been built and constructed um, in a way that means that um, it can be fully utilized in a range of contingencies. That's certainly something that, um, that, that, that China has been keen to see. And Karachi itself um, has in the past been um, blockaded by India. Um, so there has been this kind of big move of um, Pakistani naval assets up the coast, um, mostly again to, to Omara. Um, the question for Gwadar is a sort of long-term one. If, if Pakistan, if, if, if Gwadar is developed as a uh, as an economic facility initially, um, a lot of the kind of logistics that you need for that would have potential military value in, in future as well. I mean, you have to bear in mind with, with, with Gwadar that it hasn't had a well-functioning electricity supply, water supply, uh, a whole series of very basic uh, things that you would need for the port to occupy any sort of useful role in future for port calls or or, or otherwise. Um, so there is still, even at this stage, where the two sides will claim um, that this is um, essentially uh, an, a set of investments that is economic in scope, you may well not see beyond the kind of, um, kind of 
protective military facilities that are, are being constructed. And, the, you know, there's a cantonment area, there's a protective naval task force. There are all of these things being uh, developed for, uh, for, for, for Guadar. Um, uh, but it's, it's not yet crossed the threshold where it's, it's going to be turned into a kind of a Chinese military facility or anything like that. And the other big difference, I, I think, is because China has kind of regular access um, to all of these facilities in, in Pakistan and, and trusts the Pakistani military to the extent that it, it believes this is something that it would always be afforded, you haven't necessarily needed to have the kind of uh, agreements of the sort that China has with Djibouti or, or, or something like this. You don't necessarily need a dedicated Chinese naval base or something like that. Um, and Pakistan wouldn't want to give it to, to the Chinese as, uh, uh, as well. And, and it would be a kind of a sensitive subject if they if they did, including in, in the kind of the, the wider population. So I, I think there is still a um, that there are there are still reasons to believe that the ambiguity around Gwadar is something that will persist for 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 some time, and because the Pakistani army uh, is um, uh, so capable, the Pakistani security services are more capable. It's very hard to see a scenario in which uh, the PLA would have any good grounds for being directly involved in, in, in any of these kinds of scenarios in, in Pakistan itself. We have, of course, seen this sort of limited role for people's armed police or, you know, kind of um, uh, operating in, in, uh, in, in parts of Afghanistan um, around the border area. Uh, but I, I think not only would Pakistan be very reluctant to, to allow the Chinese to, 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 to come in and, and, um, and, and do something like this. It's not really clear that the PLA would be better placed to, to, to take action of this sort than, than the Pakistanis themselves. This is not um, kind of terrain or operating context in which it's at all clear that um, uh, the PLA um, has particularly good experience um, if anything, it's it's been in in recent years there have been points in which it's been the Pakistanis training uh, the, the 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 Chinese to, to 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 be better able to kind of um, fight under these sorts of conditions. Um, so I, I would I would say although there are speculations at points about you know China China Chinese troops materializing or China occupying role, I, I think Pakistan is one of the places in which. Dis, if anything, this is this this is least likely to happen. I think the places where you're more likely to see this this sort of thing is where you have a country where um, they may have a political opportunity to to do so, um, but also where they then don't trust the armed forces of the country to look out for their interests. Um, and I think that's just not the case um, with. Pakistan, whereas um, you know we've we've already seen in a more limited way in Afghanistan uh, why that might be the case, or why at least if it's not formal PLA operations um, that you have kind of quasi-military uh, actors there. Um, I, I think there are other countries in which you could envisage that too, but I'd just be much more skeptical about it in in, in the case of Pakistan. Um, I think the big the one other big question, though, of course, is as Chinese assets um, and personnel are more involved in Pakistan, there has been a concern on India's part that you may have a greater risk of drawing China into a conflict um, uh, if if India holds these assets at, at, at risk, and 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 if there's a, if there are scenarios that involve uh, Chinese. Uh, personnel or, or, or significant assets hit. And so that's kind of posed some slightly different questions. But I, I think that would be less likely to play out in 
Pakistan itself um, as, uh, as as rather something where you you might see different sorts of actions on, on, on India's other border. With more of the US focus heading into Asia and India engaging far more on the US side than ever before, will Pakistan be the new front lines of this Beijing-Washington power struggle? Or will Pakistan just sit on the back burner as India focuses more on China directly? So Pakistan, I mean, the, the, the question of Afghanistan and some of the kind of militancy nexus in that part of the world is, is not going to go away. And as long as Pakistan is able to play a kind of uh, semi-helpful or helpful enough role on that, it's still going to operate in a context in which it's geopolitically useful. People want the Afghanistan problem buried now, and they can't bury the Afghanistan problem uh, without Pakistan playing ball. And so Pakistan does always have that kind of uh, leverage over things, because this is not going to be a clear sort of stable settlement that you you get here um, in, in Afghanistan. This is going to be extremely fragile. It's going to be volatile. And there's going to be fallout when this starts to um, if, 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 if this in any way uh, manifests itself again in kind of externally directed activities. But Afghanistan has been sort of so owned by uh, the US over the last period of time that um, any president who withdraws forces from the country uh, as you know, ultimately is supposed to happen in in the coming period is going to be held partly responsible for what happens in in the aftermath. So, uh, the Afghanistan dimension is 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 not going to recede uh, entirely. But I think it is clearly the case that the U.S. is on a deep structural pivot away from the Middle East, the Greater Middle East, terrorism as being seen as the abiding security threat. China is now seen as the abiding security threat. Great power competition in general, but China preeminently in that. And that does make for a very different map of who matters to you if you're the United States in, in, in that context. Um, and it does privilege India, unquestionably. Um, and I think it's no surprise that we've, um, the, the, the first kind of proper summit meeting that takes place is with the Quad, uh, that the first significant trips pursued um, by the US Secretaries of, of, of State and Defense uh, are to the, uh, the Indo-Pacific. Um, this is going to be the, 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 the pattern. It's going to be a more kind of um, great power focused approach that the United States takes uh, rather than its, its traditional preoccupations. Um, and that certainly means that um, in that wider scheme of things, Pakistan occupies not just a, a, a less important role, um, but also one that is highly conditioned by the significance of the Indian role to the United States in, in, in this uh, wider scheme of things. So it's going to be a tricky spot for Pakistan. On the one hand, the big advantage they have is that they're not facing the kind of squeeze that they had from the United States in the last period of time, um, and that they do have some alternative sources of economic support, um, particularly from, from, from China, but, um, but, but still from, um, from, from some of the other sort of traditional benefactors like the, the, the Saudis too. Um, and they were really kind of, they were really facing 
um, a, a, a difficult set of circumstances with Washington. They were being squeezed financially. There were real concerns about the security ramifications for Pakistan if, if this continued to head in the direction that it was headed. So having some breathing room on that alone does make life somewhat uh, easier. There's some chance to stabilize relations with Washington, even if they're not going to occupy a kind of privileged role there in the way that they had in the past. Um, and they're going to have to deal with um, the, the and they're making their bets on, on the fact that um, if this is the way things move, they are simply going to have to double down on, on the China front, which is less of a bad bet than it used to look because the PLA's capabilities are far better than they were. So Pakistan can have higher quality kit than, than used to be the case uh, in the past. The level of financing and resources that are provided are, are considerably better. And even on the kind of technology side, Chinese cyber capabilities, satellites, fiber optics, a whole series of these other things are now giving um, Pakistan scope to operate in a way that um, uh, is, is more distinct and removed from, um, from, from certain dependencies on the United States that, that, that it had before. Uh, so it will be a less privileged role that Pakistan um, has in this new constellation, uh, but there are nonetheless ways in which it may well, if it's able to maneuver uh, successfully through this space, still be able to carve out a position uh, for itself that on the issues that it actually cares about, maintaining a kind of capable, uh, you know, a combination of economic support and um, enough uh, external resources um, militarily to be able to uh, maintain its um, capacity to balance against India, uh, at least on some of these fronts, um, it, it, it should still be able to uh, navigate this 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 new geopolitical context in in the region and and and, and globally. Um, but Pakistan has also shown certain proclivities at points for risk-taking and even for slightly shooting itself in the foot on this. Um, so we, we, it remains to be seen whether it's going to be able to be sufficiently nimble to be able to, 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 to pull this off. Um, uh, but one thing, I think, whatever bad judgment calls it's, it's made, it still had a good sense of where power lies and, and, and how to navigate some of the great power politics. It, it's tended to figure out ways to come out on on, on the right side of, of, of these things or in ways that advantage it um, on the external side, uh, even if sometimes on the internal dimensions of its its policy and, and, and its handling of militancy and a whole series of these other things, it's taken a set of risks and it's taken a set of approaches that have posed as many dangers to itself as it has to anyone else. Pakistan has few real friends in the world. Only partners who seek to use Pakistan for their own reasons. And it just happens to be that occasionally those goals line up with Islamabads as well. Iran needs Pakistan to remain stable enough to be able to keep the Baluch separatists in check. Because if they were to be able to gain a foothold in Pakistan, it would only be a matter of time before they would turn their attention to the Iranian-controlled half of Baluchistan as well. Saudi Arabia seeks to use Pakistan to keep Afghanistan destabilized, keep the US involved in the region, and also prevent Iran's reach from moving eastwards. The Pashtuns of Afghanistan never agreed with the British drawing of the maps, and hopefully seek to one day create an independent Pashtunistan, but doing so would gut the majority of Pakistan and Afghanistan as we know them today, an outcome either government would never be happy with. India seeks to try and gain as much influence as they can to try and cause headaches for the Pakistanis on their western border, as the more tense the western border gets, the more they're forced to pull resources and troops away from the Indian fronts. 
and deploy them to the east and north. Washington has and still needs Pakistan for its strategic position in the region, both for logistics and support. Without Pakistan, it would be nearly impossible to conduct their war in Afghanistan, keep tabs on Iran's eastern flank, hold on to potential for operations into Central Asia, and never be too far away from China's western province problems. But the US also doesn't fully trust Pakistan, knowing that information given to them frequently ends up being relayed to China and the Taliban. It's a pretty telling sign when Osama bin Laden was living in a huge compound only a few kilometers away from an ISI compound, and that the US decided not to tell Islamabad they were coming in to get him, because they knew that the ISI would pass the information on almost immediately. The US is also acutely aware of how many guns currently sit in the country, how fractured the nation is, and the huge amounts of poverty that create the powder keg extremism that Pakistan is. If the US were to abandon Pakistan, they do risk the area fracturing and the country becoming a hotbed for terrorist groups. And that is not a great outcome when the US has been conducting heavy drone strikes into Pakistan for the last few decades. China, though, seems to be the country with the most to gain here. They hope to use Pakistan to be able to bypass any blockade in the South China Sea, sell masses of Chinese goods, and house Chinese naval facilities in the Indian Ocean. They also have the added ability to use Pakistan as a lever against India, knowing that if India were to ever push toward China, Pakistan can increase tensions on their border. And with India being China's biggest Asian rival, Pakistan and India blowing themselves up in a nuclear exchange would probably end up being a net win for China. I don't think China wants that to happen, but it's a pretty big card to keep in their back pocket. Pakistan is so often overlooked by most strategists, but in all honesty, it should probably be the one we're keeping the closest eyes on. But until then, the people watching will just keep seeing both sides pour more and more fuel onto the pile. Thank you so much to everyone who tuned in this week. We've been requested to do a Pakistan episode so many times, so we're glad we finally got around to this one. Last week, we launched a brand new video series on our YouTube channel with a five-minute summary of our episode on the geopolitics of rare earths. And we'll be releasing more and more of these summary episodes in the next few days. So if you've ever wanted to show someone a certain topic, but can't get them to sit through a full 90-minute episode, this is a great way to get them started. And for those of you who've already checked it out, thank you for your nice comments. If you want to find out more about these videos or simply follow us to get polls, stats, maps, and quizzes, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Discord, Reddit, and Swell on the handle at the Red Line Pod. Or you can follow me on Twitter with the handle Mike Elliott Oz. Oz is in Australia. This show would not be possible without the support of our amazing Patreons, who donate small amounts of money each week to help us keep this show going. Our Patreons get to join in on game nights, live Q&As, and get extra materials for the show. Our Patreon donations 100% go back into the program, helping us pay for staff, programs, hosting, websites, and lawyers that are essential in running a show like this. I cannot thank our current Patreons enough for all of your support. And if you're not currently a Patreon and you feel like you can donate a few dollars a week, we would greatly appreciate it. We'll be doing our next Q&A, beers, and geoguesses sessions in the next few weeks. So if you are a Patreon, keep an eye on your inbox this week, as dates and times will be coming out then. 
a huge thank you to all of our guests this week. Aisha Jalal is one of the most amazing people you will ever come across and has a deep knowledge of the inner workings of the Pakistani system. It was amazing to be able to get her to take us through what is easily one of the most complicated countries in the world. Adam Weinstein has been working on the ground in the area for a long time now and has seen many of these front lines firsthand. He is consistently putting out great material on the subject and I highly recommend you check it out. And you can find out more details about it on his Twitter handle at AdamNoahWho. Andrew Small is one of the most respected minds on this theatre. He helps advise multiple governments around the world on what lies ahead for this highly combustible region. He's written so many good books on this subject and I recommend you check those out as well. You can find him on Twitter with the handle at AJWSmall. As has now become a part of the show here, here are our three recommended reads for this episode if you want to take the study of this topic even further. The first would be The China-Pakistan Access by Andrew Small, a great book for checking out the new relationship between Beijing and Islamabad. Our second book would be Modern South Asia by Aisha Jalal, who effectively takes us through how the web of relationships in South Asia is changing for the 21st century. And the third would be The Nine Lives of Pakistan with Declan Walsh, taking us through how the domestic politics of Pakistan radiates out into the region. These are all great reads and links to them will be available on our website. This show would not be possible without my fantastic staff. Mark Spencer has been doing this extra voiceover work for us for quite a while now, and we couldn't be prouder to have him as part of the team. He is currently putting together a petition to get Apple to add a climate change category to the podcast section, so people can more easily find information on how climate change is affecting the world and what we can do to help. It's a great initiative, and if you want to check it out, you can find him on Twitter with the handle at Climactic Show. Just the first of many great things Mark has coming out this year. Owen Swift has taken a huge role here at the show, acting as our producer, a writer, and researcher, as well as helping out with the website. The show is making huge steps forward, and it's mostly thanks to Owen's participation in the program. So if you want to get to know Owen and get to know behind the scenes of The Red Line, you can follow Owen on Twitter with the handle Owen A. Swift. Marissa Rafter joined our team a few weeks ago as our animator, turning these episodes into short videos. And her first video about rare earths was phenomenal. She brought a complicated topic to life and made it incredibly interesting. Marissa's background is with some of the biggest names in the industry, and it's an absolute honor to have her working for us. We are so proud to have her on board with the show. Joe Hawthorne once again did amazing work with his audio skills on this episode. He's a great guy and an amazing audio engineer. He effectively makes these shows tolerable to listen to. If you want to find him on Twitter or even hire him for yourself, you can find him on the handle at JoeHawthorne77. The last thanks goes out to you for tuning into the program. Watching this show get bigger and bigger each month has been really, really amazing for me. And having so many of you reach out with recommendations and articles or even just jumping on Zoom to chat to me over a drink it's been absolutely amazing, and I really, really do enjoy it. I met so many great people through the show, and I really look forward to meeting even more of you. So if you ever want to just reach out, ask a question, or even just you know want to follow up on an episode, please feel free to reach out to myself or my staff on the team. We'll be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you, and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, 
and the Redline podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.